We're going to be in Isaiah 6 tonight. It's a long book and it has 66 chapters. We won't be going through all of them tonight. So if you pretty much open the center of your Bible, you should run into it. Okay, Isaiah 6. It's a relatively short chapter. So I'm going to read chapter 6. It says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly destroyed. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Before we get into the scripture, two things I want to go over is who is Isaiah and who is King Uzziah. Isaiah was one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, circa 7th century B.C. Of all the books bearing the prophet's name, Isaiah is the longest, with 66 chapters. At this time period, the nation of Israel is split into two. You have the northern kingdom with ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah with two tribes. And Isaiah ministers to both the north and the south. Isaiah had a long ministry, roughly 60 years, and his ministry was uh, spanned several kings. Now, who was King Uzziah? And both people are critical to our text tonight. King Uzziah was also known as Azariah, and we can read about him in 2 Chronicles 26. He was a very popular king of Judah, which is in the southern kingdom. Not only was he a great military leader, but he was a great economic leader, and he was also uh, an innovator. He reigned 52 years on the throne. This kind of comes into play because we think about, in our society, constitution by law the president can only serve two terms we have eight years of them and then that's it we got to choose somebody else think of the clinton years seem like a long time we think of, <laughs> i didn't mean to be facetious and also the bush years uh, we're coming around you know it seems like we've been with him for a long time just imagine a monarchy where you could have him from young age till he dies an, an old man so He starts out great, and the Bible says that God blessed him as long as he sought the Lord. And he did become great. But the Bible also says that he became lifted up with pride. And that's when everything started to go downhill for him. 
he tried to usurp the role of the priests in the temple, and for that, the Lord struck him with leprosy until the day that he died. It was a pretty egregious offense to the Lord to do what he did. So, on a side note, you see people like that in ministry. You see people that they start out with a good heart. They start out loving people, being nice to people, doing good deeds, uh, willing to serve. Whatever the Lord wants, they'll do. And then you see them kind of rise up the ranks, so to speak, maybe become a ministry leader, maybe elevated to the position of a pastor. And then pride hits. Because God, we're nothing without the Lord. And when a person is, is made great by the Lord, sometimes they think it's by their own doing. And I've also people seen people go downhill from that point. And all you have to do is open the newspaper. You see things like that all the time. But this kind of sets the stage in verse 1 of chapter 6. Uzziah dies. So after 52 years as a king, now he's gone. It has a huge impact on these people. Why? Well, because he didn't vote in a monarchy. If you studied, you know, kings and queens and princes and princesses, uh, the king was in, he was in until he died or until he got conquered by somebody else. So these people have this good king, this great king for 52 years, and, and he's gone. And the, the big impact is everybody's probably holding their breath. After 52 years, they're thinking, well, who's coming next? You could have a guy who builds a nation to an apex, and then he has a schmo for a son, and he, he, everything falls to the ground. It's in ruin, right? So you don't know who you're going to get next. But I, Isaiah is given this vision by the Lord, and uh, it's almost as if God is saying to him, your earthly king may be dead, but the king of the universe lives forever. Trust in God and not in man. Because if you trust in man, you eventually will be disappointed. And it is comforting to know that regardless of our circumstances, God is in control. I have to tell my, that, myself that sometimes. <laughs> when life just keeps <laughs> giving stuff to you and it just keeps piling on, it's like, all right, God is in control. It's okay. He sees everything. So, and lastly... Uh, the vision is understood to be the pre-incarnate Christ in all of his glory. Uh, John, I'm going to turn to John 12, 37 through 41. John records this. In 37, he, is, he says, But although he, meaning Christ, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, lest they should turn, so that I should heal them. Now, both of those scripture, one, the first one is in Isaiah 53, and the second one is in Isaiah 6 that we just read. And in verse 41 it says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, and spoke of him, meaning Christ. When did Isaiah see Christ? They weren't contemporaries of each other. It was many, many years between the two of them. Well, it has to be referring to this scripture. So, verse 1, let's go into the text. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I get, Isaiah gets a vision of God. Now, out of the scriptures in the Bible, this one is rife with imagery. Imagery is all over it. I'm a very visual person. I like people to draw me diagrams, and I like to draw diagrams about things I'm trying to explain. But uh, 
you got to start imagining this as we're going through it. Just picture what Isaiah is seeing. Picture it as if it was you. The first thing is the Lord is seated on a throne. Again, we have to take ourselves back several centuries, some millennia, and think about the monarchies. The kings would sit, they'd have a throne room, and they'd have a special seat, which was called their throne. And it was an elaborate piece of furniture. And this was a picture of kingship and authority. So the Lord has the kingship, and he has the authority over the universe. The second thing, he's high and lifted up. He's on a different plane than mankind. God is on a totally different essence than man. I think of that song. Remember that song a few years ago? It was a female artist. What if God was one of us? It was a pretty popular song. Uh, I'm not going to sing it because then I'll clear the room out and then I'll have to explain to Pete why nobody stayed for the Bible study. So how about I just say the words? She says, what if God was one of, us, one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Now, she totally misses the point. I don't believe she's trying to be blasphemous, but God is not one of us, and he's certainly not a slob, and he certainly doesn't have to take the bus. So the point being is people have a different idea of what God is, who God is. Sometimes they bring him, try to bring him down to their level so there could be some fellowship, but they're missing the point entirely. Um, and the third thing is the train of his robe fills the temple. Train. We think of not the choo-choo, but the right away we think of probably a bride's gown. And there's a piece of material that seems to serve no purpose except for people to trip over that's, uh, that goes about 10 to 15 feet even longer behind the bride. It's part of her gown. And there's somebody has to be behind there to help lift it up so she doesn't fall when she's, somebody doesn't step on it. But the train is basically an extension of the glory of that gown. And even kings had fancy robes, and the robes would have a train behind them. Of course, they didn't go to war with those. They were more ceremonial. You couldn't go to war with a big, long robe riding on a horse. But um, the point is that the train of God's robe fills the temple. This temple was a tremendous structure. Um, you can read about the temple in Second Chronicles chapters 3 and chapters 4, the dimensions of it. But... The point is that God's glory just fills the temple. No matter what God inhabits, his glory fills it, period. Uh, there's a, another scripture that I want to read. It's 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. The title of it is The Shekinah Re- Returns. The Shekinah, the Shekinah glory was, a, was God had promised in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, on top of the ark, on top of the mercy seat, that his, a part of his glory would dwell there. It's almost like a manifestation of God would be there. Okay? So the Shekinah comes in and it, it's, it's sitting on top of the ark. It's, again, it's part of God's essence. And it says this, And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. He's just pretty dynamic, isn't he? His glory fills it that the priests, the holy men, the ones that serve him, they can't even stay there. It's just so overwhelming. I love this scripture. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, This Isaiah 6. In verse 2, if that wasn't enough, we have some other beings that are uh, here in the temple, part of the vision. It says, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Seraphim, Hebrew, the word seraph means to burn. And anything with I am at the end denotes plurality. So there's more than one of these beings. 
And are they burning with holiness? Are they, do they have a different function that has to do with fire? Not really sure, but they're the seraphim. Um, and from the description that we get later on, we can tell they're angels. Kind of reminds me, too, of the, the Bible talks about cherubs, the cherubim, which are another order of angels. You ever see those paintings? They have like a f- little fat-faced kid with curly ringlet hair and the little, wing- little wings. Hey, right there. Look at that one. <laughs> see? Perfect. Visual aid. Thank you for pointing that out to me. So there's one right there. Uh, but basically, they're missing the point, too. Cherubs, seraph, you know, they're not little, fat, little, chubby creatures that fly around and, and draw back the, the bow and arrow to, to shoot people in the butt with. I mean, these cherubs are mighty, mighty creatures. They stopped Adam and Eve from coming back uh, to the Garden of Eden. And with all the generations, nobody ever had the great idea, well, now we got about a thousand. We've been multiplying for years. Let's take the cherub. No, it didn't happen. You didn't mess with these angels. Okay? So... Some facts on angels. One, they're messengers in the Bible. They're protectors. They're destroyers. They're gatherers. They fly. They have supernatural powers. They can appear and disappear into the dimension we live in like that. They're very powerful. They have a great role in Revelation. And some common ones that we know of are Gabriel, Michael the Archangel, and Satan. So... It's pretty, pretty, the whole understanding of angels is pretty impressive, but we also will see what their role is as, as, uh, in relationship to God. On a side note, there was a person that I knew, and he was really into angels. He had angel books, and you know, he was really, he's such a, an angel person. So one time I sat down with him, and uh, I said, well, let me tell you what the Bible says about angels. So I, I brought this up, and I read it, and he'd be like, whoa. And then I read something in Daniel and, and, you know, the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece and Gabriel and Michael. And he was like, whoa, everything I read to him, he was just totally blown away. But, you know, that night I led him to the Lord. And you know how? Because after I completely explained everything there was about angels, I explained to him how they behave in the presence of God and how God is so much greater than them. That night he gave his life to the Lord. He gave his heart to the Lord. So Paul says, I can be all things to all men. Um, next point, that being said about the greatness of the angels, let's see how they behave in the presence of God. These awesome creatures fly in this particular passage or hover with only two wings. With a third of their power, they're hovering. And I can't imagine that except for, you all know, I talked about my wife's gardens, but uh, the hummingbirds, you know, they kind of, you see them going at the flowers, and they don't, they're kind of not bothered by me. I, I stuck my big face in, in the flower the garden, and they just were, my, they didn't care. It was like a foot from my face. And I saw their wings just kind of hovering. They, were, they beat like a thousand times a minute. It's just mind-blowing how they can maneuver. All right, it's a very small scale, but I'm thinking about these angels, right? There's two wings, and they're just kind of hovering. Imagine the air movement in that place as they were doing that, right? Uh, so with a third of their power, they're just kind of hovering. With two-thirds of their power, 66% of their energy, they're shown humility to the Lord God. Pretty amazing. They're only using two wings to fly. So you see how they behave in the presence of God. And in verse 3, it says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, cried, I don't think they were sobbing to each other cried as in a loud proclamation. Okay? Uh, no doubt 
each time they said, holy, holy, holy. I bet each one went right through Isaiah. I mean, it was shaking the doorposts. Their voice must have shook him up inside, too. So they three times, holy. Most likely for the Father, holy. For the Son, holy. And for the Holy Spirit, holy. Holiness just means to be set apart from sin, from a fallen creation, from rebellious mankind. Now, does that mean that we believe like the deists believe, that the Lord God made everything, set everything in motion, and just kind of, he doesn't really care, he kind of took a vacation, kind of left town for a few millennia, and kind of leads us to our own devices? No, that's not true. The separation comes from our end. We've separated ourselves from God through rebelliousness, through sin. And God is, he's just separated from that. He can't, he can't be in fellowship with that. I mean, right here in this book, it's crying out for a savior. Because of that separation, we need a savior. We need a mediator, someone to bridge that gap. And that's who we find in Jesus Christ. But the whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, how can you say that? There's evil, there's crime. You know, Marty's back there in uniform because somebody's got to watch the town, right, while I'm on a vacation day. So with all these things going on in the world, how could you say that God's glory is filling the earth? Well, not only the earth, but I submit to you the universe. Everything that God touches, his glory fills. Because in the midst of, of all such a bad world, uh, you have the design of the human body. Even in our fallen state, we're amazing machines. You know, the, the knee replacements, the, uh, you know, the artificial insemination, all the things that happen within the body that man tries to duplicate can't even match up, can't even hold up to what we have in a fallen creation. So what God created was so great, and through sin it's decayed, man can't even, he can't even bridge that gap. It doesn't happen. You know, look at the universe. I mean, I'm amazed that the, the sun is just so tremendous, and there's the laws of gravitational pull. The bigger the mass of an object, the more it pulls another object. There's an attraction towards it, Okay. And basically, you've got nine planets whizzing around the sun, and they all don't follow the sun in a nice little circle. They actually go in an elliptical pattern. When the Earth comes towards the sun, it, it flies towards the sun, and then it just whizzes past it, and it's almost like a stretched rubber band. That's the path that the Earth takes. Now there's moon. There's a moon around the Earth. Now there's other, another eight, other eight planets with their moons, and they're all going in different directions hurtling towards the sun, then they get too far, then the sun draws them back, and they come back again. It's amazing there's, there's not a collision in the universe. It, God just kind of holds that stuff the way it needs to be. So the whole earth, the whole creation is full of his glory. And we could think of examples all night. Verse 4. He says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. We talked about uh, the example in Kings regarding the, the filling of the smoke and the filling of God's glory. But now we know that as the angel's crying out, his voice is so powerful, it's shaking the strongest portion of the temple. Remember, these, the temple wasn't built like my house, with hollow block and particle board that you know, I have to pull up because it's rotted and swelling. Uh, the temple was built, and you can read more about it in 1 Kings 5, with full-size cedar trees from Lebanon. The Lebanese government, which is north uh, northwest of Israel was generous enough to send the cedars of Lebanon to help Solomon build the temple. But these trees were so big and so heavy that they would everybody been, would have been wiped out from trying to carry them or the pack animals. It wouldn't have happened. So what they did was they took these tremendous structures and they rafted them down south, down the Mediterranean, down the coast. 
And when they get it, got it kind of lined up with Jerusalem, then they went across. They went the shortest route by land, and they did most of it through the water. Okay, so you had these solid trees that were building the temple with. And then you also had large pieces of stone that they hewn out of the mountain to make the foundation. This thing wasn't going anywhere. It, it took a war from an invading army to destroy it. Okay, by natural disasters, natural means, it wasn't going anywhere. So the point is, and you know, any of you who are involved in construction know that the, the doorposts are the strongest part of any structure because in order to hang a door onto it, it has to be solid all the way around. And this angel with his voice is shaking the whole, the whole system there. It's pretty amazing. Um, then you continue down, verses, or actually verses 1 through 4 fall under the uh, seeing God for who he is, God's glory. All right? Let's just go through some of these points as if it was you instead of Isaiah. Number one, you, you, know, you get this vision. You're, I don't know what he was doing by the temple, but now he sees a vision of God. He sees the Lord on the throne. And the throne is high and lifted up. And his, his glory is somehow manifesting itself and filling the temple. Okay? Then you have these mighty angels that are surrounding him with these six wings and showing submission to God. Uh, and the angels are so powerful that they're just uh, shaking everything in the temple. No doubt it had a rumbling effect on his, on his insides you know, as, as they were shouting. Uh, and on a side note, if you're, if you're thinking about this in your mind and this doesn't move you, you better check your pulse, all right? Because you might be dead and not know it. This stuff is pretty mind-blowing if you think about it. So the question is, what would you do? What would your response be if you experienced this? Think, put yourself in this position. Would you be speechless? Probably a lot of us would. Would you be babbling, like kind of Peter, Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration? He didn't know what to do. He saw Jesus in a glorified state. He saw Moses and Elijah. Mm, let me get some sticks. I'm going to build a temple for Jesus and the tabernacle for Elijah. And the Lord said, be quiet. Hear him. So babbling is another response. Prostration, just getting down on your hands and knees, and you bowing before the Lord. Um, how about crying and run, running away? I mean, any of these things are probably viable uh, responses that we would have if we experienced this. But certainly not, certainly not, your response wouldn't be, you know, Lord, that's a very impressive uh, theatrics, but I'm generally a good person. As a matter of fact, I think mankind is generally good. I don't think we're evil. We're not sinners. Or another response wouldn't be, you know, Lord, that's very nice, but my good deeds, I believe, outweigh my bad deeds. Or, you know, Lord, that, thank you for the advice, but I have my own relationship with God. So these wouldn't be one of your responses. I think about a religion versus a relationship. Religion is man's attempt to gain favor with God through things that he wants to do. A relationship is honoring the creator for who he is. It's almost like if, you know, my wife and I, there's a relationship between us. If the laundry needs to be done and Josiah needs to be dressed and, uh, you know, the repairs have to be done on the house, and I say, you know what, Heather, I'm going to ignore all that. I'm going to let you do it. But every week I'm going to buy you some flowers. Heather says, no, I need some help around here. Heather, listen, I know what's best for you. Every week I'm going to buy you some flowers. The other stuff I can care less about. That's your job. And that's kind of like what we tell God, isn't it? God says, I gave my son to die for your sins. Believe on him and you'll be saved. Read my word. John says that Jesus was the word of God. You know, love, love your enemies. You know, forgive. No, 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 God. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do good deeds. I want to... Uh, make myself somebody in the church. And God's like, no, listen, this is the way I want it done. So it's like you're almost kind of telling God what you think that he wants, but he's telling you what he wants. You don't want to do it. 
Does that make any sense? Okay. The right response would be Isaiah's response in verse 5. He has no, no uh, idea what to do except to immediately see his sins and repent. That's his response to God's vision. Okay? Uh, verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you ever met anybody who said, woe is me, or I am undone, or I have unclean lips? What does that mean? He ate and he forgot to wipe his mouth when he went before God? No, it's a figure of speech. Uh, The contemporary translation would be, I'm a dead man. I'm toast. Game over. (laughs) It's curtains for me. Because I'm a sinner, and everyone in this country knows is a sinner, and there's nobody righteous in this country. Uh, I've seen the king of the universe, and nobody could measure up to his standard. I'm a sinner. Lord, please forgive me. That's the only response that you could have. Isaiah had the right response. And then something interesting happens in verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues from the altar. Now, if I'm Isaiah, I'm concerned right now. (laughs) This creature's not hovering anymore. He's coming towards me with a big, hot, live coal. I'm thinking, what is he going to do with that thing? (laughs) He probably could catch me if I try to run. So basically, this seraph, seraph comes towards him, and he, he touches his lips. Okay? He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. So he takes the live coal from the altar. Uh, remember, we're in the temple, the temple area. And part of the furniture, so to speak, of the temple is the altar, where the animal sacrifices, they're killed, um, in a humane way, and they're sacrificed as, a, as an atonement for the people. It's a way to, to, to purge, the, you know, to get rid of the sins. Uh, so basically, he takes one of these hot, uh, you know, these hot coals, and he touches the lips of Isaiah and makes him clean. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of, of atonement, right? Nothing else. This is a type of Christ as a mediator. What, what's being done right now? Actually, we can hold up this step with our free will. If we don't repent. What, what, what more can God do with us? We have to repent before, before we can be forgiven for our sins. We can't say, again, I'm generally a good person. My good deeds are out, outweigh my bad deeds, and eh, I'll take Jesus too, just to hedge my bets. We'll take, I'll, have, I'll have to take a little Jesus too into my heart. It doesn't work like that. We have to empty ourselves first for him to come into our hearts. And verses 8 through 9, he says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So, now that we have peace with God, at this point, Isaiah has peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 2, talks about peace with God. God can use us. After peace with God comes obedience. That's the next step. Isaiah wants to be obedient. Again, God has a need and expresses it. You know, and what should the response be from a regenerate person? Not... God says, I really need something here. Um, who, can I, who can I send? Who's going to go? Well, Isaiah's like, I'm not really too busy right now. I've got things to do. I've got a second house that I have to buy. I have, um, you know, there's just, you know, too many things, activities. I can't help you, Lord. Sorry. Isaiah had all the right responses. He said, raise his hand, send me, Lord. Send me. I want to go. I want to help. Now, by a show of hands, so in case any of you have fallen asleep at this point, Make sure you're awake. By a show of hands, how many, after seeing this vision, say what Isaiah said? How many would say what he said? 
what else are you going to say? Right? How many would say, Lord, at this point, you need somebody to serve? I want to serve. How many, how many people? Lord, you want me to share my faith? I'm there. I'll, I'll do it. It's me. Lord, you want me to forgive? Uh, um, it's me again. You know, whatever you ask for, I got my hand up. You want me to stop being obsessed with worldly things? I'm the guy, right? So what's stopping you now? What stops us now? What do we have to see this? Do we have to see this vision? You know, we know what God wants because his word tells us what he wants. Remember, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says that in times past, God spoke to the fathers through his prophets. Today, he speaks to us all through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, we have, we have the word. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations. We have our marching orders. Go make disciples of South Brunswick and Plainsboro and Princeton. These are our marching orders. Why don't we do it? You know? So, you know, I, I look at that and um, i got to be honest with you. You know, nine years ago I, I went started going to Calvary and I was a police officer, young police officer. And uh, not that I'm old now. It was only nine years ago. But I sat in the back and I would listen to the pastor and... Uh, he would talk about sharing your faith and telling people about Jesus. And I'm thinking in my mind, of course, I'm thinking, Pastor, you get paid to tell people about Jesus. I get paid to lock people up. So you do your job and I'll do my job. Well, times have changed over nine years, haven't they? Nobody forced me to do it. Nobody twisted my arm. The Lord was gentle with me the whole time. And I love it. I like being up here. Um, but God is looking for willing participants. Second Chronicles 16.9. This is a very, very cool scripture says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Pretty impressive. Imagine that. God's eyes are just scanning the whole globe at one time. He's just looking for somebody to honor him. He's looking to show himself strong on their behalf. He's looking to do great things with us if we're willing. We have to be willing, though. Um, I think sometimes people are afraid with what God's going to do with them once they give up their will. Some people have the, the impression, it probably definitely comes from Satan, no doubt, puts these thoughts in people's minds that, okay, I give up my will, I yield my life over to the Lord, what's he going to do with me? Is he going to make me a missionary to North Korea and they're going to torture me and take me apart limb by limb? I mean, people think the weirdest things, right? I can't say that I haven't thought some weird things when I first became a Christian. What's God going to do with me? He doesn't think of creative ways to make our lives miserable. He actually uses a lot of times the talents that we already have and refines them. Um, those of you who know me well know that I can be relentless. I can be tenacious. That's a nice word. Um, some people know me who, really, who are really close to me can say I could be annoying. But that's kind of a gift I have to, be, to pester people. Uh, when I was younger, I pestered my mom and my younger sister. I was a pesterer. And God used that talent over the years, and he refined it. Now I pester people, and I tell them about Jesus. And I pester them so much that they end up coming to church. They give up. You know, sometimes people in the town, they see me coming in my patrol car, and they're like, there's nowhere I can go. I'm, I'm dead. He's, he's going to talk to me. But uh, the cool thing is many people have come to church, many people have given their lives to the Lord because I pestered them relentlessly. So I have the gift of pestering. Maybe you have a different gift, but God can use that. Okay? All right. And then one, one quick thing, too, in verse 8 is he says, he says uh, actually, no, it's verse, 
Yeah, verse 8. He says, Whom shall I send? Okay, it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Why does he change that? First he says I, then he says us. Well, that's got the evidence for the Trinity written all over, over it. He's not talking to his angels. It's not like God and the angels were in the boardroom at the round table discussions, and you know, it was God and Gabriel and Michael, and God was thinking about a plan, and Gabriel came up with it, and God goes, Man, I, I would have never thought of that. Good job, Gabriel. You know, who will go for us? God is talking about himself. He's talking about us as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So um, Basically, God, uh, Isaiah had a mission here, and um, he uh, had a specific mission. And basically, in verses 9 through 13, he's, he's got something to do. And God says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So basically what he's telling them is, you're going to hear God's word repeatedly, but you won't let it sink into your heart. You ever, I shouldn't ask for a show of hands, some people close to you, maybe your spouse, and you're having a conversation, and a day goes by, or a few hours, and your spouse says, so did you, do, you, know, did you call that person? Did you, what? No, I do, we just talked about that. I told you, and, you, and you, you agreed with me. Like you hear what they say, but it didn't sink in, and you get slapped or something. But it's kind of like that, you know, people hear God's word, they heard the, the prophets, they, they read God's word, and it didn't sink into their hearts. I actually know a person who read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's a friend of mine, grew up with him, he lives in Italy now, and we had a philosophical discussion about the Bible. He read that whole thing. He probably read more than a lot of Christians read. Genesis, all the way to Revelation, he could quote scripture and everything. And, he, and he, spoke, he spoke to me on a philosophical level. It never reached his heart. He's not saved. You know, he doesn't want to be saved. He just read the whole Bible just to read it, like a, a tale of two cities or Shakespeare or something like that. But, um, and this is what the people were doing. It never sunk into their hearts. Or you will continue to see miracles, but it won't move you. Imagine seeing the miracles of God and not being moved. You're a hard-hearted people that won't repent and be healed. So Isaiah had this task, albeit it wasn't an easy one, right? He was doing God's will. Doing God's will and doing the right thing isn't always easy. It wasn't easy for Isaiah, and it's not always easy for us. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it's hard. Um, explain to people that we're sinners and we need a Savior. You know, you're going to hell unless you repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pretty hard message, no matter how you package it. It's got to come out. Okay? There's a book that I didn't read, but I know people who have read it. Something about making friends and influencing people. You ever hear that book? Okay, so a lot of you have heard of it. Now, I didn't read the book, but I'll guarantee you there's not a section on making friends and influencing people by telling them they're sinners and they're going to hell unless they repent. Guarantee that's not in there. Okay, Um, Living for God and doing the right thing a lot of times will alienate people from you. And I suspect many Christians are lukewarm because of their fear of rejection. So, um, And the rest of the chapter here, read the rest of it. Verse 11, it says, Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So you have a situation where uh, coming judgment 
you know, it, it's got to come because people have to get the picture and they're not getting it at this point. But basically the men will be taken away to fight in the war that they're not going to win. The uh, invading armies are going to ravage the landscape. The people are going to be expatriated to another country, and the people from those countries will be brought into their hometown, take their land and their houses, uh, and pagan practices are going to be brought in. So all these horrible things are going to happen. And verse 13, he says, But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Uh, this speaks of the, the remnant. We know that when uh, Elijah fled from Jezebel, he was terrified. Jezebel said, you know, you're going to get yours. It's not going to be pretty. And she was the queen. So he ran. He fled. And God said to him, what are you doing? You don't belong here. What are you doing running away? I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to ba Baal. The remnant. There's always a remnant in any country. There's a remnant in Iran, believe it or not. I get a periodical where... Uh, Talks, it's the voice of the martyrs. It talks about uh, persecuted Christians all throughout the world. And the funny thing is they are so resistant. The government is so resistant to the gospel that they actually, the Christians will set up uh, like uh, repeaters for Christian radio to go into Iran and a lot of these countries. The government spends all this time and money uh, buying jammers to jam the signal. So if the people have a radio in their house, they can't hear the gospel message. It is amazing. It's, it's satanic. It's, what do they care? You know, who cares? So what? They, they hear something. They're so afraid of the gospel. They're so resistant to it. But there's a remnant in every country. There's a remnant, there's a remnant here. Uh, so although all seems lost, the remnant will remain. Now, responding to God's glory as I, Isaiah did, a few things. Number one, you see your sins and repent of them. When you see God for who he is, it's like a mirror to yourself. And it's not one of those mirrors that make you look better. It's one of those mirrors that make you look worse. You see God for who he is, and you realize you're a sinner. We're all sinners. Okay? Um, you accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for sins. You accept him as your Lord and Savior. And you desire to serve him and be obedient. That's, that's your response. After you have peace with God, you want to serve him. You want to be obedient to him. Um, look, you know, it's, it's just like if somebody has a terminal illness and you go to the doctor, and they say, you're going to die unless you get this treatment. Okay, you'd listen to him, wouldn't you? Well, our our terminal illness is sin, and many of us here have made that uh, that step and have repented and turned to the Lord, and some of us haven't. But we are going to die. We're all going to die physically, but some of us may die spiritually. Okay, sin is the disease, and Christ is the cure.